What's up, guys? Thanks for tuning in to the Athletic Lab Audio Inventory. All right, let's just get right into it. So we just finished up our first roundtable discussion. Uh, it was based off a question on our Q&A post on Instagram. Uh, this question came from Wellesley Wings Track and Field. Sitting in on this first round table was Mike Young, Greg Gustin, and John Evans. So I'll give you a little background on the question that was discussed. It's a track and field athlete, a multi-event athlete, whose sprinting, jumping, throwing, and weight room numbers could all be considered elite. However, their meet day performance does not correlate well with training and testing numbers. Um, so the question is, what could be the, the mechanism for this? What could be causing uh, this, this kind of gap between training performance and meet day performance? And what training suggestions uh, would you have to close the gap between testing numbers and meet day performance? Uh, a little subtext about the athlete here. They're relatively strong starters and quite good at short approach jumps and standing throws. So again, we're trying to figure out what could be causing the athlete to do so well in training and in testing, but kind of lose that performance uh, when it comes time for a meet, and what training suggestions would you have to try to uh, correct for that. Okay, so let's go ahead and listen in on this first round table. So I think first before talking about training suggestions, you got to look at why that, what might be the case here, like what's actually, what's the reason that they're not performing well versus these tests that they're doing. Um, my first thought is that, uh, say they're a 100 meter sprinter, are they testing these, are they testing a 100 meter in training, or is it a 30 meter, is it a 20 meter where they accelerate well, they said their short approach is good, do they accelerate well, they're explosive out of the start, but speed endurance is lacking, so they don't, they don't finish well, uh, they don't reach top speed and maintain, or uh, maybe that's one issue for the 100 specifically. Um, and I guess the other thing to think about is uh, when it comes meet day, are they is psychological, um, you know, is that, is that a factor where they're just psyching themselves out, they're tensing up, they're not running well on meet day specific to the, you know, the events they're running. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I think being a, being a gamer, you know, in the sense that you show up and you perform really well is obviously really important. But I think another, uh, another component of this is how well do your testing measures correlate with your actual performance. So, for example, if you are a 100-meter dash guy, I've heard Dan Paff or Mike, I've heard you reference it before, that overhead backs uh, correlate with 100-meter performance or something like that. But that, in my opinion, they might not be that similar. Um, even though there might be a correlation, there still might be uh, components to that that make it vastly different. So running 100, yeah, you display high power over short periods of time, but it's still not an overhead back. So uh, there are a lot of scenarios where the test that you're doing to see if you're getting better isn't actually the, th the performance you're trying to do. So for example, yeah, bounding for a 100-meter dash runner. Bounding is not sprinting. I think that they're just two different. So I'd look at a couple areas. One, uh, I think Greg touched on a little bit, is uh, when he mentioned psychological, I'd say 
anxiety arousal curves are always going to be a big thing when you can perform well in practice but not in a competition <clears throat> if in a in a practice type scenario when the lights aren't on and the crowds aren't in the stands and you don't have somebody next to you and some people perform better like that uh, because it puts you in the sweet spot of uh, anxiety and arousal uh, and then when you go to actually compete uh, anxiety is maybe too high or arousal is maybe even too high and, and you don't hit in the sweet spot of performance so uh, you actually do worse even though you care more or you're trying more or you're thinking you're amped up you're essentially too amped up um, the other thing I would kind of look at would be uh, how they practice so for example if I've had some athletes who uh, like to like to treat training as a competition every day and basically test every single day in some fashion and effectively what you're doing there is giving yourself an opportunity to uh, make competitions a true competition environment less important so you if say you're a weightlifter and you take uh, you allow yourself to miss 10 times at a maximal weight uh, that could never happen in a in a uh, competition, but maybe you misguidedly think that your one made lift in the snatch, say, was was uh, justification for your nine prior misses, and you go home patting yourself on the back, thinking that you had a great day because you hit a PR lift, even though you missed nine times before. Well, in a competition, you could never do that. Competition, you have to do it on the day in your three attempts. Same thing in long jump or shot put or high jump. You know, if you're a multi-eventer, you just get three attempts to get it right. So if you're not getting it right, then uh, you know when you need to get it right, then it doesn't matter. Uh, so how you practice is very important. Putting some pressure on yourself, creating mock competitions, maybe even practicing with uh, various unpredictable scenarios where you're introducing some contextual interference or movement variability or environmental variability, whether it's practicing in poor environments or adding uh, more or less light or uh, contrived circumstances and scenarios on yourself to make you put yourself in the mindset that you uh, might encounter in a competition. And then I guess the, the last thing that, that kind of comes to mind uh, specifically to the things that you addressed were uh, you said you're good at stand throws and good at acceleration and good at short approach jumps. Uh, all, all those things are very highly correlated with full event performance, but they're, at the end of the day, not the same thing. So something is probably missing in, the, in there, and a lot of times you're missing the progressions of basically moving from slow to fast. So maybe you rush that process in short approach uh, long jumps or standing throws, uh, you are fine, but when you go to do a full throw, you glide or you do a spin or whatever, maybe you rush out of the back, you're fast out of the back and then slow in the front of the circle or uh, reverse on a full approach, full approach you do the opposite of what you would want to do where you, instead of big complete pushes and uh, building tempo over the first couple steps of the run that you are actually uh, rushing, rushing your turnover and really speeding things up so that when we get to the board we're somewhat momentum deprived as as boo would call it and we're actually slowing down coming into the point when we want to be speeding up or at our fastest 
Um, you know, we see that in Olympic weightlifting, guys that rush pulling off the ground really fast or acceleration, they spin their wheels early and then they fizz out later on in the race or uh, jumping events where you're just too fast out of the back and then slow when it counts to take off. Throwing events, it's a major, major issue to be fast in the back of the circle and then uh, slow when it counts in the front. And really, you have to get yourself in the mindset of uh, being progressive in practically everything and not rushing the process. So slow to fast, slow to fast. Uh, it's, a, it's a hard sell for a lot of people when they think that they need to throw really fast or jump really far or run really fast. The best way to do it is oftentimes to slow things down in the in the first couple steps or first actions. Yeah, going off of that, um, when you look at the the sprint specific runs that are the tests that you're doing, um, just like Mike was saying, slow to fast when you're when you're going over that 30 meters that you're testing. Uh, again, you may be really fast through that 30, but the re the other 70 matters when you're in the race. So that 30 for him might be might be more important for him to be a little more patient. And have you know, uh, like I said, a little more patient 30, whereas he can still accelerate for longer and longer, um, take the acceleration out past 30 meters, and uh, you know eventually have your top speed be later in the race, so that you end up decelerating less. Um, you know, so that's something to look at in terms of test specific, the sprint specific. Yeah, I I think with the the long jump example is kind of what what came to mind that. Uh, when you're doing short approach jumps and that, that slow to fast, short approach jumps, depending on how many steps, I would doubt that the athlete is going to be at the same speed on, say, an eight-step approach as opposed to a full-step approach. And I think that that changes a lot of the variables. You're no longer hitting the board at 11 meters per second or 10.5 meters per second. Maybe now you're at 8.5. So your foot's going to be on the ground longer. It's going to take longer for your center of mass to travel forward over the takeoff leg. And I think that that time on the ground is going to change the stress shortening cycle. It's going to change how you amortize ultimately um, your ability to apply force over that time interval. I think that all those variables are going to change. And so once again, it's not the same thing. So yeah, it does correlate. It is still long jump. It still is a short approach. But, I mean, there are people who do sometimes can move their approach a couple steps forward and will jump actually further. Um, at the elite level, I, I, don't, I haven't seen that too much, but um, especially progressing kids up. And I think a lot of that just has to do with how well you produce force over different periods of time. But um, that's just a, an example specific to long jump that I kind of thought about. Yeah, so for, I mean, as a group here, if we're thinking about specific training tools, you might be able to give them. Um, you know, even just uh, uh, just tips here and there, what, what might we be able to recommend for someone like this that's just having trouble other than just looking at what they're already doing, what else might they be able to add in or modify? So I, you know, I look at the practice design. Um, you know, if you're doing fully block practice where you just do dozens and dozens of the repetitions using the exact same technical constraints repeatedly, I would move away from that, start introducing some serial practice and randomized practice and uh, introducing movement variability, contextual interference, just to challenge the motor program and your skill acquisition a little bit. That way when you get into the chaotic world of competition that you're a little bit more prepared for it and your, your technical abilities will uh, 
hold up better under the pressure of competition and under new scenarios that are inevitably encountered in competitive situations that you'll have better transfer from the skills that you practiced in training to the actual competition. Um, I'd look at getting some exposure to the actual competition events outside of the actual competition. So you should probably see full approach long jumps and full approach um, or full throws in practice, uh, maybe in a mock competition environment where you put some pressure on yourself. You say, hey, I'm only going to, I'll take a maximum of 10 throws today. But if my first, if I don't have a throw uh, over 40 meters in my first three, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shut it down. I, so you put some, some pressure on yourself to be able to achieve um, early or you have a constrained practice environment, similar to what you might see in a the competitive arena. Um, and then I think from a physical side of things, I think uh, maybe some stuff that both John and Greg alluded to was uh, there, there could be some physical things going on there as well. Obviously, if you're, um, if you're better at these things that are much more low-end power-related, weightlifting movements, acceleration, standing throws, short approach, long jumps, and not as good in the competitive arena when things become much more elastic, eccentric, and uh, bouncy, that maybe that's what you lack. Maybe it's not your brain or your mind or your practice scenario. Maybe you're just not, uh, don't have great eccentric force generating capacities. And that, that could be something for sure. I mean, if without knowing all your test numbers, if your fly 10 is poor or if your, um, you know, your, your jump performances are poor, maybe re, uh, reactive strength index, that kind of thing, if that's low, <clears throat> maybe that's a place to look and say, okay, it's really just a physical thing. Upstairs, you're okay, but physically you don't quite have it. You know, there's, there's plenty of stories out there of guys that can squat the house and uh, they can go out and they can beat sprinters or jumpers or football guys or whatever at 10 meters or 15 yards or whatever it is. But then you ask them to run longer than that and they're garbage. And, uh, you know, you, that could very well be what you're seeing. You know, we've got guys who can throw really well uh, from a stand. I've seen this as a, as a shop of biomechanist. They throw really well from a stand, but they don't pick up very much at all from uh, the full throw. Uh, and ultimately, who cares if you can throw well from a stand because in most cases that's not going to be enough to win. So we need to be good at the thing that uh, counts. So uh, whether it's physical or mental, you got to have some exposure to that, to that specific competitive activity um, in similar constraints, whether it is the practice strategy that you choose or the doing full attempts full, full uh, throws, full jumps, that kind of thing, every now and then. It doesn't take a lot. Alternatively, you could just basically enter into competitions and just say, I don't give a shit about the competition. I'm just going to use this as practice. And that works really well. Um, I think sometimes that's enough of uh, a mental break to, to uh, reduce anxiety and put you in that anxiety arousal sweet spot where you can perform really well in a competitive environment just by saying, hey, I don't, I don't care as much about this. This is essentially just a practice. You do see a lot of people perform really well like that when their season is effectively done, the championship has occurred, and then they go and enter a couple meets 
uh, after the fact, just some local meets and they PR, they get a lifetime PR. And it has nothing to do with their physical qualities getting better, it's everything to do with the fact that they just allowed themselves to perform at a high level because uh, the stress was, was uh, too high before. Uh, so whatever the case is, you gotta find a way to, to replicate not just the movement patterns, I think, uh, of your competitive event, but the competitive environment as well, uh, whether that's you know, making a full approach or making it a uh, competitive environment where there's pressure or introducing cha chaotic scenarios where you uh, can't predict what's going to happen. Yeah, and just to touch on one thing that he mentioned there, the um, eccentric force generating capacity is a big thing when we're talking about uh, high speeds. So whether it's the latter half of the 100-meter sprint where you're, you're in um, basically your max velocity mechanics or the end of your full approach long jump, um, the faster you're running, the quicker your contacts are, uh, the more eccentric force generating capacity you're going to need to continue that. So it's... That's one thing on, on a physical side to uh, potentially think about putting a little more effort into if that's something that's lacking. And the, the RSI, Reactive Strength Index Testing Protocol, uh, a couple different methods for it, but that's something that can pretty simply give you an idea. And I think someone who's competing at a high level and performing at a high level in track and field should, be, um, should have quite good numbers on the RSI value. So uh, one thing, easy, easy to check, pretty simple, and uh, can give you an idea of uh, if that's if that's an issue, if it's something that could be um, improved upon. All right, guys, that's it. Thanks for listening. If you like this, you can rate us. You can share this with your friends. And if you have a question, go to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Anchor, anywhere you can find us. Drop us a DM, and we'll try to answer it when we can.